though it was already mentioned in our announcements, how certainly appropriate it would be to make mention yet again of the appreciation that we each feel of the opportunity that's been given to us by the God of heaven to come together on an occasion such as this one without fear of his special difficulties due to men's, for instance, waiting for us at the door and turning us aside, but rather in the peace and harmony of this occasion to enter into a study of the Word of God and to worship Him in, in the ways that He has commanded in truth and in spirit. As you may have noted in the particular bulletin assessment of tonight's lesson, the title is in fact the very one I've made mention of on the wall, Mechanical Music in the Old Testament. As we make consideration of the subject that may well come from a title like that one, it shall be our attempt to look more interestingly at the nature of the Old Testament tonight and to ask some very simple and somewhat basic questions related to the nature of how music played a role in the worship of that day and whether or not it was mechanical. If so, did God approve it? And might we in fact make the very clear statement? It is sometimes the essence that that kind of question raises itself today. And perhaps you and I have had occasion to not only deal with such a question, but in an attempt to address as well as to answer it. Some introductory thoughts may well be appropriate as we begin. There is no question that throughout the entirety of human history, that human nature has been such as to recognize the significance of worship. That is true not only in the current Christian era, we understand, of course, the church to be a worshiping body. We're commanded to worship God, Matthew 4, verse 10, Revelation 22, verses 8 and 9. And with regard to that commandment to worship, it never ceases, however, to be a rather pertinent question for men and women to ask, what is the means by which that worship is in fact to be appropriate and approved in the sight of God? In fact, some issues that may well be immediately observed when one makes mention of music, certainly there are various varieties and types, and you and I could easily list a host of them. But it seems, at least to me, that all the types could be bundled into just a few categories. First, there is singing. We understand what it means to sing. To employ the vocal cords and the other means of the human frame, such as the tongue and the mouth, to vocalize sounds and set it to a certain tune, for instance. But as that is done, notice that is not the same as the other categories that I've chosen to list. For instance, one could also mention mechanical music. Clearly, there is usage of some type of mechanical instrumentation. It is not the same as vocal music in that sense. Now, we clearly also see that there are hundreds of different kinds of vocal means that could be used. But there's also to be recognized the mechanical strains, be they by pipe, be they by various other means. Let it also be noted, there's other types of vocal music other than the one we've previously mentioned. You see, there's things like yodeling and humming and various other means like that that are not the same as singing. Perhaps finally one could list electronic means. To say all of them is to say that those categories, at least in a way, do seem somewhat distinct. Does God find each equally approved? If he commands to use music, are each equally acceptable? Now tonight, we of course will be interested in noting the following. As we are interested in the nature of worship, is it just as approved, for instance, in the sight of God to employ mechanical, electronic, singing, as well as any other kind of vocal music? There are many in our world who no doubt would quickly answer in the affirmative. 
that there are no restrictions, that there are no limitations on the kind of music that God would find acceptable and pleasing. In fact, you might easily note that one of the arguments that might well be employed, especially with regard to the mechanical variety, might well proceed somewhat as follows. Mechanical instruments of music were used in the worship of the Old Testament, especially at the temple. It might well thus be affirmed based on Psalm 150 that Brother Greg read for our hearing this evening. Clear mention there is made of stringed instruments, various other woodwind instruments. If it be true that they were employed there with God's approval, and if it be true some would tell us that God changes not, he is the same today, yesterday, and forever. And for instance, Malachi 3 verse 6 does affirm that. God said, I change not. And James 1.17 still affirms that there is with him neither variableness, neither shadow of turning. And hence, it would seem that an argument is thus being made. If they were used with appropriate approval in the Old Testament, and if God changes not, then may you and I, not today, employ them with complete approval from the side of heaven. That's a fair question. The only answer can be found within the pages of the Word of God, and it is to that book I would invite us to turn tonight to in fact see whether or not that line of argumentation is substantiated. Is it in fact bolstered by the very text of the Holy Word of God? As we begin that, let us turn back the clock then to the Old Testament and address that opening premise. Were mechanical musical instruments utilized in the Old Testament worship at the temple with the approval of God? That shall be the central question before us, and it is then our goal to see if we can answer it. A bit of history will be not only helpful, but to some extent necessary as we push forward. When God, through his mighty working and power, brought forth Israel out of Egyptian captivity... He did so with a majestic and mighty hand. He, in fact, rained plagues upon Egypt, and ultimately the Pharaoh urged the children of Israel to leave. As they did so, 50 days later they arrived at the foot of Mount Sinai. During that period of time, they'd crossed the Red Sea again by the powerful hand of God as he led them through on dry ground. When they arrived at Mount Sinai, Moses and the leadership together with Aaron it is a fascinating consideration that on that occasion God called Moses to Mount Sinai and delivered to him the commandments that he wished his people not only to know but necessary for them in order to be pleasing to him. Those commandments were not optional. They were not on a somewhat, shall we say, take or leave object. If Israel was to be pleasing to God, if they were to be his people, and if they were to conduct themselves in a way that was acceptable on his side, it was necessary not only to know those commandments, but to obey and to keep them. Isn't it interesting to consider then the significance in the Old Testament that's laid upon the giving of that law of Moses? You and I might well note that the first five books of the Old Testament are sometimes called the Pentateuch. Notice that the the four of them, beginning at Exodus, continuing through Deuteronomy, center on the nature of that law. We might well note especially the book of Leviticus. 
in that book that consists of some 27 chapters, there is a dramatic emphasis on the Levites. That's, in essence, how the book got its name. An emphasis on the regulations, statutes, and laws that the Levite tribe was to conduct in order to make things appropriate and pleasing before God. There are detailed references to the sacrifices, how they were to be given, when they were to be given, the frequency of the fact they were to be given. Needless to say, God left no stone unturned as he delivered in specificity the commandments that they were to know. In part of that, we might well in question, what kind of music did God command relative to the tabernacle? We well remember that in the book of Exodus, especially starting at chapter 25, there was a special emphasis on the construction of the tabernacle, what the furnishings were that were to be used inside it, where those furniture, furniture pieces were to be placed. Again, isn't it a startling fact? God told them not only what to make, but where to place it in the holy place and how to even configure the most holy place. That again was with respect to the tabernacle. And might we remember that in Exodus 25, 9, God did say, Make sure to do all things according to the command that I've given you. Later, in fact, the Hebrew writer quoted that verbatim in Hebrews 8, verse 5, when on that occasion again, See, thou makest all things according to the pattern delivered unto thee in the mount. God gave a pattern. Now, with regard to the worship that had taken place and was to take place in the tabernacle, what kind of music was to be employed with respect to that worship? Have you thought about that in the reading of the first books of the Old Testament? There is mention made of trumpets, but it was never with respect, for example, to the worship of the tabernacle. They were to be used to call Israel to arms in a time of military conflict and when there were emergencies, the trumpet was to be blown to signal the moving of Israel to come together to fight, if you will, in a time of war. It is a significant thing that there is no mention made anywhere in Genesis through Deuteronomy of mechanical instruments to be used at the tabernacle. Not one. That alone is a significant observation. For you and I have often noted that God's biblical law of silence is a very stringent and demanding thing. In fact, what happened to Nadab and Abihu when they chose to go beyond what God had affirmed? In Leviticus 10, verses 1 to 3, we remember that they, these two sons of Aaron, in fact, the older sons of Aaron, were such that they were killed on that spot when they chose to offer strange fire unto God. We see then that when God had not commanded, Israel did not have the liberty to in fact make up their own regulations and rules and step beyond what God had said. And hence, since God had not approved these mechanical instruments in that tabernacle era, He did not approve them in that era at all. It was not an optional matter. Do we not remember in Deuteronomy 4 verse 2 as well as Deuteronomy 12 verse 32 when God told the children of Israel, Whatsoever I have commanded thou, observe to do it. Ye shall not add to it nor diminish aught from it. Thus, since God had not commanded these matters, they did not have the liberty to thus add them on their own. That would have been a presumptuous mistake on, the part of God, on the, their part toward the command of God. With that observation said, we now are at the point of pondering and wondering if these mechanical instruments did not thus appear with divine approval in the worship at the tabernacle, 
they had certainly appeared by the time that Brother Greg read our text from Psalm 150. When did they appear? And who introduced them? And what right did that person have? Did God at some later point thus command Israel to utilize mechanical instruments? Let us look a little bit further in our study. It is a significant observation on many occasions that various mechanical instruments thus found their way into the worship in the Old Testament era. We have noted that thus the tabernacle that it was not to be found. But notice these other texts. In Psalm 92 verse 3, as well as Psalm 150 verses 3 and 4, we notice an especial reference to stringed instruments. In fact, in the Psalm 92 3 verse text, we observe that there was an instrument with ten strings on it. So it had far more even than we typically recognize as a guitar. In regard to ten strings on a particular instrument, might we observe that there obviously had come the time when various instruments had come to be utilized. In that text of Psalm 150, notice again with me verse number 4. Praise Him with stringed instruments. That appears to be a commandment employed in the sacred text of the long ago. If that command had thus not appeared by the time of the tabernacle, it now certainly had appeared in the Psalms. Our question is still remains as a good one. Before we answer that, let's note other instruments though, not only stringed ones. Notice also in Psalm 150 verse 4, there is the mention made there of an organ. Now that is not an organ that you and I typically appreciate today. A very large structural system made of cylindrical pipes of various sizes. That word in the King James translation perhaps would better have been rendered pipe. It's one of the ancient types of mechanical instruments and one would simply blow upon that pipe and it may well be not unlike simpler kinds of acoustical instruments in that fashion today. With regard to that thought, Notice also, though, other instruments as well mentioned in the context of the Old Testament. Notice particularly various percussion instruments, such as a cymbal. Those are frequently employed not only in the later part of the Old Testament. I've listed some references for your consideration. In Psalm 150, as well as 1 Chronicles 13, verse 8, even much later, after the children of Israel had emerged from Babylonian captivity, even the days of Ezra make mention of these symbols being employed. Our question thus remains to be answered. These types of instruments, be they percussion, be they various woodwinds, be they even the stringed instruments, obviously had occurred and become to be employed. Had God changed His mind? Had these come to be thus seen as approved by Him? Or was their introduction by some other means? Let us then observe, especially in the Chronicles, the historical introduction of these devices. Without further ado, let's look then in the book of First Chronicles and look especially at various texts that give us the only biblical information about the introduction of these various mechanical instruments into usage in the Old Testament era. Let's begin our study in the 16th chapter of 1 Chronicles. I would invite that you read with me verses 5 and 6 of 1 Chronicles 16. There are various names in these verses. 
So as we read them together, they can be somewhat difficult to pronounce, but we shall in fact do our best. First Chronicles 16, beginning in verse number 5. Asaph the chief, and next to him Zechariah, Jeiel, Shemaiah, Ramoth, and Jehiel, and Matathah, and Eliab, and Benaiah, and Obed-Edom, and Jehiel, with psalteries and with harps. But Asaph made a sound with cymbals. Benaiah also, and Jehaziel, the priests, with trumpets continually before the ark of the covenant of God. Those two verses that we've just read fill in many ways into the midst of a sentence. But what was being described and who was it that was involved in the commandment given? This was the day when David had become the king of Israel. As such, he had authorization and control over, of course, many governmental and civil affairs. And if you'll simply look back up to verse number 2, you might note it says, And when David had made an end of offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. And he dwelt, dealt to every one of Israel, both man and woman, to every one a loaf of bread and a good piece of flesh and a flagon of wine. And he appointed certain of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord and to record and to thank and praise the Lord God of Israel. And that's where the sentence begins that you and I began just a moment earlier. Who was it thus that appointed Jeiel? And who was it that appointed Benaiah to employ psalteries and harps? The subject of that sentence grammatically is David. It is not God. David was the one apparently who gave the authorization to the Levites, to Jeiel, to Jehiel, to Shemiramoth, to Obed-Edom, and to the others that was here mentioned. And isn't it significant in verse number 6 that the priests that were here given this command by David thus proceeded to follow the order that he gave. Now admittedly, the text that we've just read seems to give the indication that the discussion was revolving around the commandment that David had given. And might it also be noted in verse 2, who made the burnt offering on this occasion? It was also David. It's somewhat interesting to perceive that at times David had about him a degree of presumptuousness, did he not? Could it also have been on this occasion he was choosing to somewhat behave himself the same? Let us look at another text before we reach any final and firm conclusions. Let's look a few chapters forward to 1 Chronicles 23. As we turn those pages to arrive at 1 Chronicles 23, might we pause to take note that the Chronicles, both First and Second Chronicles, found their way into the Holy Text by, of course, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And as such, these books themselves contain dramatic and specific records of the priestly character of the Old Testament and especially the kingdom of Judah. Great detail given with respect to it. No wonder thus David in the early history of Israel is given such careful detail. In 1 Chronicles 23, let's begin reading in verse number 1. And on this occasion, we shall read through the first five verses of this chapter. 1 Chronicles 23, 1 through 5. So when David was old and full of days, he made Solomon his son king over Israel. And he gathered together all the princes of Israel with the priests and the Levites. Now the Levites were numbered from the age of 30 years and upward, and their number by their poles, man by man, was 30 and 8,000, of which 20 and 4,000 were to set forward the work of the house of the Lord, and 6,000 were officers and judges. 
Moreover, 4,000 were porters, and 4,000 praised the Lord with the instruments which I made, said David, to praise therewith. Might we observe the interesting language employed on that occasion with a special emphasis upon verse 5. As David again had great honor and control over many of the affairs and features of the ancient kingdom of Israel, might it be noted the language that he set forth in verse 5. 4,000 of the various tribe of Levi was set forward to be porters, that is, those who especially watched the door and took care of the more tasks that would be of that character. But then he says, 4,000 praised the Lord with instruments which I made. And it is significant that the Hebrew text does make use of that first person reference to the nature of the instruments. Who made them? David said he did. It would thus appear the authorization for them, David took the credit for it. He apparently had not found it elsewhere, but David gave the authorization to the tribe of Levi, especially that number set aside to worship God by virtue of these mechanical instruments. Could it also be noted that two chapters forward in chapter 25 of 1 Chronicles, let's note yet another reference that falls in the same line as this. In verse 6 of this chapter, it is a significant thing again here that some of the names that appear are a bit familiar from our reading in chapter 16 a bit earlier. So we will only read verse 6 on this occasion, but might we note together its reading. All these, and note he's given a significant listing of names prior to that verse, all these were under the hands of their father for song in the house of the Lord, with cymbals, psalteries, and harps, for the service of the house of God according to the king's order, to Asaph, Jeduthun, and Heman. Whose order then was it with regard to the praising of God with these various instruments? The chronicler said it was the king's order, and of course the king was David. So far the texts have thus led us in the direction of appreciating that their introduction was not by command of God, it was rather by command of David. Now that still leaves us with further references, of course, to see what else might well be said in the Old Testament about it. As we seek to do that, let us turn to Second Chronicles, if we might. In the book of Second Chronicles, we again affirm that the same writer is making note by the way of the Holy Spirit's inspiration, the wonderful nature and character of Old Testament worship. As we arrive at chapter 29 of the book of Second Chronicles, we have now advanced well beyond the time of David. David has long since now passed from the physical earthly scenes of this life. Other kings were now reigning. And in particular, this was the days of Hezekiah. As emphasis is laid upon the worship style in the days of Hezekiah, we might especially notice the, with interest the thrust of verse number 26 of this chapter. Second Chronicles 29 verse 26 and the Levites stood with the instruments of David, and the priests with the trumpets. Pausing only at that point, we notice that now centuries have removed from the time, of course, that David actually lived in the flesh, but it is a significant thing that it is still stated that they were worshiping with the instruments of David. The instruments that apparently he had authorized initially. The instruments he had given initial commandment with respect to. It is a rather remarkable issuance of the nature of God's Word, isn't it? 
So often the references of that form are made. As you make note about that very point, look also with me at the next verse, verse number 27. And Hezekiah commanded to offer the burnt offering upon the altar. And when the burnt offering began, the song of the Lord began also with the trumpets and with the instruments ordained by David, king of Israel. Yet again, there seems a rather dramatic reference to the origination of these instruments as having been by the authorization of David. The instruments to be noted in verse 27, ordained by David. It is to be noted that the word ordained in the King James translation is in italics, meaning the translators did supply it. The original Hebrew text has a reference and a reference to the fact that David possessed or authorized. And our translators chose the word ordained to carry that meaning. Without it, the, word, the sentence would in fact read, and with the instruments by David, king of Israel, as if he had owned them, authorized them, put them in place, and established their usage in part as the worship of, of the ancient temple era. The recognition thus of all these passages so far seems to lead us to the following set of remarks. First of all, from the host of these texts, God would only have had to state it once, but yet he seems to have stated it at least these five times, that with regard to the employment of mechanical instruments in the worship of the ancient temple, it was not God that introduced it, it was David. It was David by his selection, by his choice, by the matter of his presumptuousness and by his preference. It was never by command of God. Furthermore, might we note yet a second remark. Did he do that with divine approval? That is to say, once he did introduce it, did God grant his blessings upon it? Did he accept that as an appropriate means by which he could and would well be worshipped? It was one of the minor prophets of the Old Testament who had something to say about that. I would invite your attention with me to the sixth chapter of Amos. In Amos chapter 6, verse number 5, there is a rather simple but yet a rather profound statement made about that day and about that time. Amos chapter 6, verse number 5. As the prophet in his bold and powerful way was speaking to the ancient people of God, he had many things to say to them in the book of Amos. In fact, it was in that very book that Amos found himself very much unaccepted by those quite often to whom he preached. Especially in chapter 7, the high priest and even the king did not lend a very kind ear to what Amos had to say. One chapter prior to that, beginning in Amos 6, verse number 1, we note that a series of woes, W-O-E, was pronounced upon ancient Israel for various and sundry things that they were doing. Among those woes, we arrive at verse 5. Now remember, this is a continuation of the same sentence, a woe being pronounced for something. Let us see what the something was. Let me provide the word woe as continuation from the initial sentence. Woe to them that chant to the sound of the viol and invent to themselves instruments of music like David. A rather stern woe from the God of heaven pronounced upon those who, as the prophet would declare, would invent to themselves instruments of music like David. 
Was it thus the case that David introduced mechanical instrumentation into the worship of the temple with divine approval? Amos said it wasn't. God through Amos affirmed that it wasn't. In fact, a woe was pronounced. A serious designation of that which is improper was pronounced upon the nature of those that invented to themselves instruments of music like David. Can one play a piano in his house? Sure he can. In fact, did we not see that Miriam on one occasion danced herself in an appropriate fashion but employed a timbrel? But it was no worship service in Exodus 15. You see, there's something distinct about what must go on at worship that must have divine approval. And when David introduced these matters, that he did not have. Thus, might we notice already that original premise with which we began our lesson, that namely mechanical instruments were used with God's approval in the Old Testament? No, they weren't. God never approved them. Never at the temple, for here a woe was pronounced upon those who, like David, invented them and introduced such things. Thus, that whole line of argumentation that begins with that premise must fall flat. It is not substantiated and put forth in exactly those wordings and in that way. Might we notice some other things, though, that might be concluded as also a part of our study? Now, did the children of Israel sing as they worshipped, for instance, at the temple? Certainly they did. There are many records in the Psalms of where they praised in song. In fact, the New Testament quotes those very verses on more than one occasion. Hebrews 2 verse 12 as well as Romans chapter 15 both quote from the Psalms about the singing that took place in the temple. That apparently had the entirety of God's approval for never was that condemned. However, might we ask, if they played while they sang, was that good enough? Did God look upon an accompaniment of an instrument as long as they sang? Was that acceptable? Apparently not. For notice again the condemnation or the forbiddance mentioned in the very language here of the book of Amos. Verse number 5. That chant to the sound of the viol and invent to themselves instruments of music like David. It is true, though, that the first part of that verse does lead us to wonder a bit about what else was taking place. Notice again the language, that chant, that's a verbal or vocal expression, but they were chanting to the sound of the vial. So there was accompaniment mechanically to what they were singing, if you will. Now, one might call into question the chanting, for in fact, other translations render that somewhat differently, implying that the songs they were singing were perhaps inappropriate. We well know that in our worship, we are given full command and expression of God to employ psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, mentioned both in Ephesians 5.19, Colossians 3.16. These songs may well have been inappropriate, but whether that was the case or not, the accompaniment in that verse, the latter part of it, was not an approved thing either. That perhaps leads us to that next appointment that I've stated. It is not the case one can thus claim that as long as we sing, as long as that takes place, regardless whether there's instruments or not, God is happy. He wasn't in the Old Testament. Might we notice this accompaniment does not follow that it has God's approval. It did not in the Old Testament. We shall address shortly, does it, in the New Perhaps that leads us to one of the last features on that sheet. 
If it was the case that God never approved of the employment of mechanical instruments in the Old Testament, why did he permit it? Why did he allow it? Why did not he strike David and everyone else dead for employing such things? There are several things that might well be stated in answer to such a question. Admittedly, one of the first might be this. That was a twilight era before the perfect covenant had come. You and I now serve under the perfect covenant, Hebrews 8, verse 6. A covenant for which there is not nor shall there ever be a better one. In that era when perhaps the twilight nature of faith was yet only dimly visible, it's interesting to observe that there were more than one thing in the Old Testament that he did not approve of, that is to say it was not ideal, but yet he tolerated it. Another would be the character of marriage. Many of the patriarchs had more than one wife, but Jesus himself said with regard to divorce and other matters that it was never God's plan. It was never to be that way. But our God in heaven chose to tolerate, to permit it. But Christ closed the door on matters like that. Did not Paul say in Acts 17.30, the times of this ignorance God winked at? There was a time when God would allow man, due to the imperfectness of the covenant under which he lived, to do things. God tolerated it, understanding there'd be a day the Savior would come. And the shed blood of that Savior would cleanse those sins, but... Notice Paul made a distinction. The times of the ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. No longer is ignorance a valid thing to plead. No longer can one claim to live beneath an imperfect covenant. The perfect covenant is now here. We can even see, though, that he never approved of these mechanical types of instruments, even in the Old Testament in worship. Perhaps it would be fair to say that one of the closing thoughts of our lesson this evening might well be to make a further set of remarks relating to our worship today. As we've noted, and we began the lesson by using an argumentation that some might well present to us as to why it might be authorized to employ instruments in our worship today. We've now seen that that argumentation will not stand. It just simply doesn't hold water. But might we notice what does the New Testament say? Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, what did God say? He said to sing. He did not say to play any instrument. In fact, I should say any mechanical instrument. The only instrument, in fact, in that text, and one which some translations make note of, is the heart. That which is to be played, if you will, the soloing is done on the human heart, nothing else. The fruit of our lips, Hebrews 13, 15, expressing praise and thanks unto God. The wonderful aspect of Colossians 3, 16. Do we not read? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. Question. Is it possible for mechanical instruments to teach anything? Well, the obvious answer is no. A mechanical instrument can't think, it can't do anything other than that which something does to it. And yet Paul gave commandment that what is to be done in regard to music must involve teaching and admonishing. Clearly, any mechanical instrument is thus outlawed, for they cannot accomplish that. The power and majesty thus of the Word of God in that text alone 
sets before us that God has specified what he wants. Are you and I at liberty thus to go beyond it, to step beside it, to proceed beyond it? We remember in 2 John 9, a rather strong condemnation is placed upon anyone that would transgress and go beyond that which is written. Echoed not only in that text, but also in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 6. Perhaps finally, should it not be remembered that the text of the Bible closes in Revelation 22 by pronouncing a rather stern set of difficulties surrounding anyone that would add to the Word of God. In fact, to those who would do so, John the Apostle especially said that to that person will be added the plagues, un the plagues revealed in the book of Revelation. And those plagues in Revelation 16 surround the very matter of all those who are not pleasing and acceptable in, in the sight of God. Finally, what about those who then fall short of that which God has revealed? Also in Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19, that punishment for those, their name removed from the Lamb's book of life. Either way, to add to the Word of God or to take from it is eternal ruin. It is thus a powerful conclusion to note this evening in regard to the music of the Old Testament. Mechanical musical instruments were not employed then with God's approval. And certainly they still are not, for God has not relaxed that commandment, but in fact, it might be observed as follows. Given that the Hebrews were familiar with the employment of mechanical instruments in the temple of the Old Testament, though it was without divine approval, might we ask, what did those early Christians worship with in their services in the church? It was not with mechanical instruments. In fact, Jesus, together with those with him, sang in Matthew 26, 30. As they had gone out to the Mount of Olives on that occasion, there were no mention of instruments at all, other than the very nature of their bodies able to sing with vocal activity as they sang praises unto God. Perhaps it might be noted then in conclusion this evening that there can be no question about the importance of music and worship. And it has ever been so. And as you and I thus live in a beautiful and powerful era of the Christian sentiment, might we never forget that music is still vital to our worship and we should participate in it with all the fervor and energy that is capable of us. For we are expressing thanksgiving to God and we're honoring Him and exalting His name in those words that we sing. But how is that singing to be done in terms of accompaniment? May we employ an orchestra or just a single player of some instrument? No, we may not. For God has not authorized it. He has not given His approval of it. He did not at the temple and He has not in His church. How thankful we can be that His simplicity and that which is set forward ever helps us know that God has specified what He wants. And if we are to worship Him in spirit and in truth, we shall not go beyond it. In a compliment to the nature of our study of music in the Old Testament tonight, we've been reminded about how that God says what He means and He means what He says. And that nature of our God is so wonderful. He hasn't left us in the dark about what He wants. He hasn't left it to our own imagination to come up with that which He desires, for He has given us commandment. And in Matthew 15, verses 7 through 9, we even read about those who worship Him in vain. They who choose to do so either apart from the Spirit that He has given in terms of command, 
or in terms of their failure to worship in truth, one or the other, perhaps both. May we ever desire as we come through those doors to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And that includes our singing as we sing with spirit and with understanding, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 15. This evening, as we come to this point in our lesson, we certainly wish to offer invitation to anyone who may recognize the need to obey in a public way the call of the gospel. We are called by the gospel of Jesus Christ, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 14. And as that call is extended to us, it has eternal ramifications, eternal consequences if we reject it. And we ultimately pass from this life having never used the blood of Christ to cleanse our sin-stained soul. We shall then forever regret that foolish decision that we made. For you see, we turned our back on the only sacrifice that God will ever give for sin. Tonight, if you've never obeyed the gospel initially, having thus come forward and in a way to have your sins washed away in baptism, we'd be happy to aid you in that accomplishment tonight. If you have become a Christian but have not lived faithfully to the call of the gospel, you've allowed things to distract, to defocus you, and you have done things of which not only you're not proud, but you're ashamed of them. You need to make things right tonight with your God. If you have sinned in a private nature, go to your Heavenly Father in prayer through the nature of the Son privately. He will hear those prayers He's promised to. But if your sins have been public, others know about the decisions you've made and the life you've lived. They need to know about your desire to repent. Come back to your first love. We were blessed this morning to witness such an event and how wonderful it always is when a child comes home. That prodigal son came home and you had two to nine. If we could be of assistance to you in either of these ways, we'd be honored to help. It's while together we stand and while we sing.